Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining me. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 164 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. Figured I'd do a solo show, you know? I, I'm i not apologizing, but uh, I know it's been a while. They've been fewer and further between, and I, I've had a hard time expressing why. You know, it's so funny... Because when I first started the show, it just came pouring out like on its own episode after episode. You know, I, I could talk into the microphone without any hesitation. And then it kind of changed. You know, I guess I have my, my ups and downs when it comes to creativity and openness and ability to be authentic or myself or confident and I think I'm starting to understand why and I I found that there was this conversation that was very kind of useful if you will between Bill Maher and Jordan Peterson where they discuss sort of the moral imperative to say something if you feel led to say it, right? I would not have started this podcast if I did not feel in some way an imperative, you know, a moral obligation to share some of my thoughts about what's happening What's fucking going on, right? And they they touch on that. And I think they do a decent job explaining it. Now, I've tried to trim down these clips as much as possible. Uh, I don't want to just lean on their words. I want to contribute my own. Uh, but I'll probably break this up into a series of uh, little clips for you and kind of give you my comments along the way. Uh, As I listened to this, I had about a hundred different thoughts that I think are worth sharing. We'll see how many of them come back to me. But before we do that, you know, I want to take a moment and I want to thank 
everyone who's ever contributed to this show. You know, I just got a letter in the mail from a gentleman named John, who I don't know a whole lot about except his return address. And I hope I have it, you know, I hope I didn't lose the envelope, but he, he had a little handwritten note. And it was very unexpected, you know, to be honest, I haven't been getting quite as many contributions lately. You know, I got a few for a little while there. You know, maybe a dozen over a couple of months. And then they kind of dried up. And I can understand why. You know, I I haven't been as consistent with the show as I would have liked. You know, it just kind of is what it is. In some ways, like I said, I just kind of hit a, hit a valley in my creativity. It's almost like I had a, you know, a bunch of half-finished projects. And my mind was scattered, right? And it was hard to do much more than just the WTF forums. You know, it's it's almost funny to me that those are now easier than doing a solo show like this. Um, but it, it does make a difference to have other people to bounce off of. At the same time, I... I I like doing these shows and I want to continue to. And this note from John, it says, just wanted to donate in a non-traced way. He, he actually sent two uh, ounces of silver. Yeah, two ounces, which I believe is about, I don't know, 60, 70 bucks. Not too shabby. But he says, keep up the great content you're sharing, John. You know, simple note. And I really appreciate it, John. I, I hope you hear this. Um, yeah, you know, I I appreciate every one of you listeners because there's really not too many. And I understand that there's a lot of content out there. So if you're listening to me, I hope it's because you find something of value here. But with that, let me throw up the first segment of this interview and we'll take it from there. I remember being in Chicago, I believe it was, during the, maybe it was 21. Yeah, we weren't working at all in 20. Okay, so, uh, and I remember the, I was talking to the driver taking me in from the airport, and he was, he had a mask on, and my friend who travels with me, and we always would tell drivers everywhere, anybody, you don't have to have the mask yeah, on yeah. for me. You know, like yeah. if, you, if you want to break in the day, where you don't have to be breathing your own stale, shitty air for no reason. Um, we'll open the windows to the car, whatever. We, and this guy said, uh, he said, I know, I'd like to. He said, but my four-year-old daughter, I came in last night and I didn't have the mask on and she freaked out. Mm -hmm. So they, they hit, I just, it always stuck with me. They'd gotten a four-year-old to be panicked when she saw her father without a mask. Yeah, right. I mean, what is that? Where does that fill and fall in your psychology professor world? I mean, what does that do to a person? What's that person well, going to be like it, when they're it was 20? Also, it, it was also what it did to everyone and what it revealed about everyone. Like my sense in Canada, Toronto was locked down very badly and people were pretty much on board with it. And 
my sense in, in Toronto was that 70% of Torontonians would have worn a mask for the rest of their life without making a peep about it. And 30% of them would have been happy about it because it gave them an opportunity to inform on their neighbors. Oh. And that wasn't cute. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, well, in East Germany, like one third of people were, were government informers. Absolutely. And you think, well, that couldn't happen here. It's like, yeah, it could the, in about uh, 15 minutes. Yes, the Stasi mm-hmm. payroll. Did you ever see the movie, The Lives of Others? Mm-hmm. The German it won the best Oscar yeah. for best foreign language. Yeah, there's a fun society to live One in. One of the best movies. I mean, if you're looking for something with subtitles, I would recommend that one highly. People, the the lives of others, and it was about yes, what went on in under communist East Germany, and yeah, somebody he was he was a playwright, and he was playing ball with the regime. He was kind of on the you know a line. He was able to be an artist, but obviously he wasn't. And what they did with the bugging and the, oh my God, it was how, how humans can get themselves into those kind of societies. And I suppose we could. You do it by lying. You know, I mean, people think that ty- tyranny is a top down, is the top down, in, top down imposition of force on people who would otherwise want to be free. And that's just not true. That isn't how it works at all. A totalitarian state occurs when everyone lies about absolutely everything all the time. And the totalitarian state is the grip of the lie. Now, the politicians and the people who have power in those situations, they lie too, but so does everyone else. Now, there's a story. It's interesting. I've been writing a new book. It's coming out in February. It's called We Who Wrestle With God. And I've been writing about um, Sodom and Gomorrah and the threat of the destruction of the city. And so the idea is that if if a city deviates from the appropriate moral path too blatantly, then all hell will break loose. Of course, that begs the question of what constitutes the appropriate moral pathway. But um, Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, first of all, that if there are 40 people, he says, well, you can't destroy the city when he's talking to God. You can't destroy the city. There's some good people there. And God says, yeah, well, I don't, I don't think there's very many. And, and, and Abraham says, well, what if there's 40? And God says, well, if you can find 40 decent people, then we'll leave the city alone. And Abraham bargains and bargains. And I think he bargains them down to 10, and, <laughs> which is quite good, you know, because, you know, God's willing to give in. But it, but it means something very specific as far as I'm concerned. It means something like if, if in a political unit there's still 10 people who are willing to tell the truth, then all hell will not break loose. That's enough. 10 people who actually tell the truth is enough to stave off the descent into totalitarian chaos. That's why comedians are so bloody important, right? Because they can, they do say what's true and you can tell it's true and you can tell that people believe it's true because people laugh and you can't, you can't really fake that. It's genuine. So, you know, guys like, hmm. I'm going to I'm going to try to just be real with you and open up a little bit about what I've been feeling and thinking and the truth is it's it's been difficult because I am constantly torn between you know perhaps it's because of how I was raised but torn between wanting to please people and not upset people not anger people and telling the truth, right? For instance, when it comes to 
seeing family. You know, I am often the one that says the thing that makes a couple people uncomfortable. And I know that some folks in the family would prefer I didn't, but sometimes things need said. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But the same goes for this podcast where it's kind of like if I'm not totally in my zone, if I'm not totally confident, I fear what people might think. And that's not good. Not when I have a moral imperative to say what's right. You know, I might not always get it 100% right, but I I believe I'm on the right track. You know, I believe I'm kind of like Jonah, you know. It's kind of like I I I'm hearing my conscience. I can understand why he would walk away and ignore the voice of God. Cuz it's not exactly fun to go and tell everybody that everything's fucked up and they need to do something about it, right? This idea of you know, only 40, make that 10 good truth speakers can save the city. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's few and far between the people that do it without hesitation, who don't fear the repercussions. And I, I will admit in ways at times I have fallen prey to that fear. I understand how corruptible we can be because we want to be accepted and loved. And in a corrupt world, you know, the easiest thing to do is to go along, to get along. That's not what we're called to do. You know, I... I love doing this show. I really do. I think... I think in some ways it's my calling. I think overall my calling is to help people grow food. To encourage, you know, community. True, you know, cooperative community. Free thinkers, free life, free livers. I don't know what you want to call it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here for a purpose and that purpose is multifaceted and I'm still figuring it out. But what I can't do is censor myself or, or hold back or, you know, take the easy way out. It's never easy. To do what you're called to do. And kind of like Jonah, you know, at, at times I've I've kind of said, you know, no, you know, I just can't. Not right now. I don't have the energy. I don't wanna. And then you get swallowed up, taken down into the darkness. You know, I see what Jordan is talking about here. Let's uh let's listen to some more. You do you, but this is not liberalism, okay? 
Um, and certainly in the realm of gender. I mean, that's, I, I mean, liberalism is always about tolerance for let's celebrate and allow everyone to be protected and respected for who they are. That includes homosexuality. That includes trans, which of course is a real thing that happens. That's different than rewriting the <laughs> anatomy book from page one so that every kid who comes out, it's a jump ball and there's no such thing as sex. It's only gender. And again, this is something different. It's not liberalism. So you can't say, oh, you don't believe in that. You're not a liberal. Freedom of speech used to be a whole liberal thing. We used to own the First Amendment like the conservatives yeah. owned the second. That's reversed. I mean, something like the homeless. Uh, it was liberals who I used to do the show on HBO, uh, Comic Relief. We're going to help get the homeless off the street. Now it's how dare you ask them to get off the street. So you can keep the homeless on the street and you can have you know, segregated dorms and all that. But that's liberalism. It's not. It's something different. Mm -hmm. So. So there's a line of research that's been developing, I guess, over the last six or seven years that I think is very relevant to this. And because I've, I've been thinking more and more thoroughly that the culture war is actually not a political battle at all, that the political battle is a facade for the actual battle. So. Which is? Well, there's a group of researchers, most of them centered originally at the University of British Columbia, who started studying the subclinical manifestations of psychopathy. So there's a guy there named Robert Hare. And Robert Hare was the first psychologist who really studied psychopaths. And he developed a checklist for psychopathic behavior and the diagnostic criteria. It never became a formal diagnostic criteria, but criminologists have used it a lot. And if you're psychopathic, you're much more likely, for example, to be a repeat offender. And so he delineated the core psychopathic traits. And there's two sets of core psychopathic traits. So the first core dimension is something like predation. It's like, if I'm a psychopath, whatever's yours is rightfully mine. And right. if you can't defend yourself against me taking it, that's just an indication of the kind of weakness that makes you a, vi a viable moral target, right? You're too weak to resist. You're too, what would you call it? You're too uh, contemptible to even, to even bother with. So not only can I take your stuff, but morally I'm obligated to. <laughs> you, you say this very convincingly. Yeah. I, I know you're adopting the voice of them, but I'm just saying. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. You well, could play this part beautifully. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Well, I've watched people like that a fair bit. And this, the second dimension is parasitism. And so that's a more subtle form of predation. And someone with a parasitical lifestyle will adjust their attitude towards you so that they can, they can, so that you'll do the work and support them. And they'll do that however they oh. can get you to do it. They'll use the sense of uh, like the like pro the proclamation of victimization, for example, is one of the strategies that the parasitical psychopaths use. Like the stripper's so, boyfriend who doesn't have a job. Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> right, right. Or pimps. We come from different... <laughs> schools of thought yeah okay let me ask a dumb layman question before we finish this yeah i would love to know and i'm sure i was told the difference between sociopath and psychopath it's 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 not really a relevant distinction really yeah yeah it's oh. not really a relevant distinction. okay it, okay so, so predation and parasite right right so a psychopath is a predatory parasite and it's not and that means they're very very low in agreeableness no empathy tend to be callous that's the personality manifestation. They're very unconscientious. They they will not formulate or keep verbal contracts. Like who are some people who fit this description? Uh, Ted Bundy. Oh, I was hoping for more 
<laughs> well, let me put it another way. Who are some people running for president now? <laughs> well, that, you know, that's an open question, right? So, so that, that brings us to the next part of this. So Robert Hare's students, a variety of them, started to study psychopathy in its more normal forms, right? Because you can imagine you're so psychopathic that you end up like fully criminal and then you're in prison. But that do, not everybody who has psychopathic proclivities is going to be foolish enough to be criminal enough to be caught, let's right. say, right? So there's other things that make you get caught if you're a criminal. So they studied, started to study subclinical psychopathy and built a personality inventory to measure subclinical psychopathic traits. And so the traits are psychopathic, so predatory parasite, Machiavellian. So like a Machiavellian individual in preparing for an interview like this would be thinking, okay, well, now I'm going to go on Bill's show. Um, what can I get out of it? You know, right. how can I elevate my status? What could I use to sell? Like, and then every word would be crafted Nothing to extract. Well, every word would be used to extract out something that was only self-serving, right? You, you know that right. if, this, if your dialogue with someone goes well, what happens is you fall into an honest conversation. No, it's just because you have no, I mean, I have no agenda and I have no idea where we're going to go. It's, right. I, my, my agenda is to have as close to what this would be if we were not making this into a podcast. And it would be no different. I would have, I, I can honestly say, I don't think there's one thing I would have done differently. And it should feel that way. And yeah. I want it to feel that way. Yeah. Um, and that works, that really works well on YouTube. It's what people want because they're, they're actually tired of, overproduced instrumental Absolutely. conversations yeah right. okay so but a machiavellian would be manipulating the conversation constantly to get an edge to get an angle so i wanted to just chime in here and say um they're hitting on something that i've been referring to pretty frequently and it's this this idea that there's really only three kinds of relationships parasitic predatory and mutualistic you know Jordan Peterson's coming at it from a psychological point of view um, in terms of the characteristics of a psychopath how they often behave in a predatory or even parasitic way which there's often some overlap kind of between but this is something that I've touched on a lot over the course of this episode and uh, or I'm sorry of the over the course of this podcast excuse me and there's a reason you know it seems important to me that the only alternative to predation and parasitism is, Mutualism, otherwise referred to as cooperation, right? Symbiosis. This is the theme, perhaps, of this entire show. Easy peasy. You know, it's all about mutualism and truth, right? That's the point of these WTF forums we've been doing, right? You know, in a in a sense, I feel bad that that's been the majority of the content on this on this channel here. But at least I've been able to do that, right? The community has helped. You know, there's 
There's been times where despite having some listeners, um, I feel very much alone, right? Which is why little notes like what John sent definitely make a difference. Um, all that said, you know, I, I understand once again, sort of where they're coming from with this. And I, I hope that what Bill Maher was alluding to about, you know, I hope that this conversation comes across not as a production, not as a Machiavellian, you know, self-serving thing, although it does serve me, right? It makes, it, it helps me figure out what's going on in my own mind helps me figure out what's going on in my reality in this world. Um, but that's not the purpose of it. I want it to be an honest conversation that would be the same as if you were just sitting in the living room talking to me yourself, right? Not listening through the airwaves. Obviously, it's a bit one-sided when when we're not actually conversing, but this this broader conversation that is so clearly happening these themes that overlap, you know, these different, if you'll excuse the, the, the phrase, these different influencers, Jordan Peterson, Bill Maher, Russell Brand, Joe Rogan, you know, all the way down to some of the more like niche guys, you know, Sal the Agorist or you know, Dave Smith, Robbie the Fire, fill in the blank. All of these guys are having a sort of shared conversation even if they're not talking directly to each other and that's what this is too right i hope it doesn't feel redundant or um you know like we're just recycling what everyone else is saying but this is an important conversation that needs to be had right and they're gonna hit on it some more but it does. It grinds my gears. It pisses me off when people refuse to have that honest, real conversation. You know, refusing to address the rot, the corruption, the fact that we live in Babylon. You know, people want to ignore the truth because it's uncomfortable, but we have to talk about it. It's an obligation, right? Because we only need 10 or you know, 30 or 40 truth tellers to save this thing. Now, I think we've got a whole lot more than that, but you have to be unapologetic about it and you have to be fully confident that you're saying what needs to be said. And so they, they don't use the, they, a Machiavellian doesn't use their words to represent what they believe to be true. They use their words to obtain whatever they're angling for from the person they're talking to. And so that happens on the sexual front, for example, very often. So people who are hyper committed to short term mating strategies tend to use instrumental language, right? They're manipulative. So psycho, psychopathic, Machiavellian, um, narcissistic. So someone who's narcissistic wants unearned social status, right? And the last one, they had to add this, that the, these, this triad was first called the dark triad, and then they had to add sadism. Because it turns out if you're all three of those things, you also take positive delight in the suffering of other people. And there's a very high correlation between the dark tetrad 
personality traits and left-wing authoritarianism. So, so, so that's why I think it's not fundamentally well, political, is that what's happening is that there's a small minority of people who are very manipulative, who use compassion as a camouflage, and then people who are generally and genuinely uh, compassionate, they can be manipulated easily. And so, and that's not, that's why you're seeing, that's part of the reason you're seeing this deviation, deviation from more classical liberalism. There's no better camouflage for someone who's truly dark right. than compassion. Right. 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 Wow. That is some interesting shit. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's brutal. And, and there, and the data is accumulated. Well, it's worse than that too. Eh? It, it's actually really quite, it really quite frightens me because 3% of the population has these traits, basically, and that's stable cross-culturally. And what seems to happen is if it falls to 1%, everybody forgets that people like that exist. And so then when they pop up, they can be successful. But if it gets up to about 5%, then everybody thinks, oh, oh the psychopaths are here, and they start beating them back. And right. so they stabilize <laughs> around 3%, right? Any more than that presents a positive danger to the integrity of the state itself. Now, I think we enable the psychopaths online because yes. I think that online communication circumvents all our defenses. Yeah, well, there's, there's accruing literature on that, on that front too because the online troll types who do nothing but cause trouble online and, and, have these personality traits. And what, what's going to happen if it tips past the 3% to 5% or 10 Well, that's what happened in the Russian Revolution. Like, what happens if, it, if, if those people get the upper hand they like to dance in the ruins, man. Right. You bet. And and they're out for right. they're out for mayhem. Right. And yeah. they're, and they're drunk on the on the elixir of revolution. Well, they're not going to be successful pursuing their manipulations in a society that's actually predicated on work. So they want to flip things upside down because they can rape the runes. That's a good way of thinking about right. it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very bad. And I really am yeah. concerned that oh. see, because we virtualize communication, right? And that means that there's certain defenses that we have against being uh, being exploited that are no longer making themselves manifest. So you can say anything you want online, and nothing, especially right. if you're anonymous, and nothing will happen to you. And you can bring any kind of accusation against anyone at zero cost to yourself. Right. And that's not good. Like it, it might be, it might be like fatally not good because something is driving polarization. You know, 80% Americans agree on most political issues with about an 80% overlap, right? But we're getting polarized. It's like, well, what the hell changed? Well, how about the entire mode? How about all of our modes of communication, right? They've yeah. radically changed and they certainly radically. enable reputation savaging, gossip yes. mongering, cancellation, all of that. Yes. It's way easier online. Not just a difference in... Uh, degree a difference in kind yeah yeah different uh, absolutely i've had this argument with people on my show say oh you know that's what they said when radio came in and tv it's like in computers no it's different it really is different because um there wasn't this addictive quality to it it's a difference in kind it's uh the cell phone is more like a pacemaker mm -hmm. than a television set mm -hmm. i was able to turn off the television set even though i liked i dream of genie mm -hmm. and bonanza and whatever i could have watched it but it i wasn't addicted to it so you know i have kind of taken a little break um from like instagram you know not not like cold turkey per se but i have decided to kind of take some time and regroup and just be with myself 
without being constantly plugged in. And I, I think it's good. In fact, I know it's good. But it doesn't negate my need to speak, right? I, I'm trying to be like well-balanced with how much I engage versus, I guess, create. Um, I don't know. It is, it's a very like dangerous world that we're in right now. This has been a constant push and pull, uh, with me and certain people in my life who, you know, because of the cell phone, because of the perceived access, um, I often am in conflict with like family in particular about how available I am or how responsive or what have you. And I will admit it's sort of a, uh, for me, it's like a self-defense mechanism to unplug, regroup, check in, whatever you want to call it, take a break from this, this pacemaker, as he calls it, right? The, the phone in the pocket. You know, sometimes it's so nice. I make a point to plug in the phone to the wall, right? Take the dog for like an hour long walk. No podcasts, no music, no texting, no nothing. Just me and the dog. And I think that's important, right? You know, I guess I wasn't sure what kind of episode this was going to be. I'm just trying to be real and, and share with you, like I said, my my thoughts on sort of these these words shared between Bill Maher and Jordan Peterson, because I think like them, you know, we, you know, myself and you, the listener, we're doing the same thing they're doing. We're trying to talk it out. You know, what we would call debriefing in sort of the outdoor leadership community. I was trained, you know, when you go on an expedition, you always debrief at the end. You talk about what went well and what didn't go well. You know, and it's not always a pleasant conversation, but you have to debrief. And that's what we're doing, like, collectively. We're debriefing the last few years. We're debriefing the last century, trying to figure out how the hell we got here. That's why certain themes keep coming back, right? The money system, sort of pop culture, this, this direction we're heading with, you know, woke ideology, cultural Marxism, you know, sort of how how this all plays out and how it's played out in you know in past decades or past centuries or past millennia you know this desire to understand where we came from and how we got the mythology that we got and maybe what kind of misconceptions we've had about the past and and what it means for the present right these are super important conversations you know, it's so silly because sometimes I hesitate to record simply because I know other people are already talking about it. But just because someone else is talking about it doesn't negate my responsibility or yours for that matter. 
Now, I'm not saying to just like chastise people, tell them, you know, wake up. It's more like we have to be willing when the opportunity arises to speak truth. And not just when it's easy or convenient or comfortable, but when it's when we're called to, right? When we're called to. You know, it makes me think about, you know, I can't think of a specific example necessarily, but I've seen people freeze up like deer in the headlights when something is happening in front of them that they know is wrong, but nobody says a word. Right? This is common. Now, it's the bystander effect. It's, oh, well, someone else is going to handle it. Whether that's the police or the fire department or what have you. Well, it's not my problem. Even though it's happening right in front of me. I think this is what these guys are talking about to some extent, right? This, um, this self-censorship that is being seen by, you know, all of these like celebrities that refuse to speak out when they, when they know how corrupt, how bad things are. But it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. They don't want to lose their status. And it's the same with, with people in our lives on the, you know, on the more like normal everyday kind of level don't want to say what's on their mind they see things that are wrong but they don't want to they don't want to be the one to get involved this happens every day this is how the this is how the corruption comes in right this is how tyranny happens jordan peterson said it earlier he says it's really not top down tyranny happens when your neighbor is is willing to rat you out to the authorities. It's kind of bottom up in that regard. So, anyways, let's play on. See what they have to say. I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, a Bible tell me what story? you think about Bible story. This is this is Jordan. Peterson's I love your Bible, Bible story. <laughs> okay, this is a Bible story. So, I'm um, I've been looking at the story of Jonah. Yeah, and this is a story that you'll appreciate. So, here's what happens to Jonah. He's just minding his own business. And then he, the voice of God comes to him and, it's, and the, vo- the voice says, you have to go to this city, Nineveh, because everybody in Nineveh is like, they've strayed off the path and I'm thinking about wiping them out. But you could maybe <laughs> go there and tell them like how foolish they are and they'll straighten up and then I won't have to destroy the city. And, jo- and, and Jonah thinks, there's no goddamn way I'm going to do that. First of all, Nineveh is a city of his enemies. Babylonia. It's 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 a city that he's right. not he's not allied with, and so he thinks, right. well, you guys can go to hell in a handbasket, and if God wipes you out, that's perfectly fine with me. Right. And sure. then he also thinks, like any wise man would, it's like, I see, this is the task you have for me. It's like <laughs> there's 150,000 people there. I'm a foreigner. I'm going to go there and tell them how they're misbehaving, <laughs> and that's going to work out well for me. <laughs> so he thinks to hell with that, like any sensible person would, and he doesn't say what he has to say. Right. So then he hops on a boat and he gets the hell out of there. Well, it turns out that God's not very happy if you're informed that you have something to say and then you don't say it. 
So the storms come and the waves rise, and now the ship's oh. in danger. Okay, so what does that mean? The whale. It, yes, that's right. It means that if you don't say what you have to say when you're called upon to say it, you'll put the whole damn ship at risk. Now, the soldiers figure this out, or the sailors, they figure out, oh, there must be someone on the boat that like, isn't right with God, and that's why we're in danger of being swamped. So they will go and ask everybody, and Jonah, to his credit, says, yeah, it's me. You know, I, I had the voice of conscience made itself manifest to me. I had a task to do. I refused it. I'm screwing things up. And the sailors actually try to save him, but it doesn't work, so they throw him overboard. Now you think, okay, Jonah's got what he deserves because he shut the hell up when he had something to say, and now he's going to die. And you think, that's pretty damn rough. And partly what that means is if you hold your tongue when you have something to say, then you're going to put the ship at risk, and you'll be lucky if you don't die. All right, but that's not enough. That's not nearly enough because that isn't all that happens if you don't say what you're called upon to say. So the next thing that happens is Jonah's drowning away. That's about as bad as it gets. And then this creature from hell itself comes up from the bottom of the abyss and <laughs> takes him down. And so now he's in hell for three days. And so that's the next part of the story, which is that if you're called upon to say what you have to say and you refuse it, like you'll end up in a place where you wish Wait, you were not dead. not the whale? It's the whale. Oh, okay. Because... But it's the same thing. Like that. In well, the story, the whale is described as hell. It's exactly the same idea. In Religious, the guy who was arguing with me, and he said, uh, he was very, this point was very important to him. He said, the Bible does not say whale. It says big fish. Hmm. <laughs> okay, well, now it makes perfect sense. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, it's it's the thing, well, what it is. It's a, it's a representation of the thing that dwells in the you, dark. It's so interesting that you see the lessons in these that I just always read these things as like super fucking stupid from mm -hmm. the bronze age you know mm -hmm. and obviously they were telling people something i mean whoever wrote this was had a, a message in mind well they were trying to fit look they were trying to figure out by telling stories how the state itself got corrupted and this is one of those stories so the story is here's how the state gets corrupted so i really like this where Jordan Peterson's kind of talking about the importance and the utility of stories and fables and how you don't have to necessarily understand the meaning on a conscious, conscious level. It can be conveyed through story to where in life you might, you might come across a situation where all of a sudden you think, wow, you know, I'm being called to say something like Jonah and I don't want to end up in the belly of the whale. You know, maybe I need to say it. Maybe I need to be brave here instead of turning my back to God's will. Right? And as a, as a budding novelist, right? As a wannabe author, you know, I can relate to this, this need to tell a story, to convey an idea that's not so easily spoken, right? Might take a whole book to convey one idea. And that's, that's okay, right? We're a, we're a symbolic species. We, we have told stories since the dawn of our existence. 
you know, in many ways, stories are at the core of culture, right? And they always have been. Whether they're true stories or tall tales, they convey meaning, right? They're important. And in some ways, I guess this podcast itself is a story, right? You can go back, what, two years now in time and sort of see me get swallowed up by the whale. I spent my three days in the darkness, if you will. And if you listen closely, that, that's pretty obvious. Now, guys, the, the truth is, I, you know, I think I'm coming out of it and I'm, I'm kind of fired up again. You know, I'm starting to have faith in my mission you know, to, to build this company that helps people grow food, right? Like, I think the podcast is part of the mission, but it's not the main mission. The main mission is to get people gardening. You know, my sister, I read this on the WTF forum, um, but my sister sent me a Bible verse, and it certainly rang true. It says, The Lord will always guide you. He will satisfy you in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And that's what I'm trying to figure out how to be, right? You know, what I said earlier, I don't understand how anyone could do five shows a week. It's actually not really true. It's just the envy in me talking. Because when I first started, I probably put out a dozen episodes my first week. Like, it was crazy. It was stupid. I was like a spring whose water would never fail. But then, you know, at different times, I kind of took Jonah's approach and almost turned my back to my own mission. Right? There's kind of this weird thing where... It was easy enough to start a podcast and to keep doing a podcast. What I've really struggled with as of late, despite the fact that I think I'm ready, I've really struggled to ask for assistance, right? For partnership. In order to grow easy peasy gardens, I need, I need investors. And I've been considering it for a long time. And in some ways I've hesitated because the moment anyone else gets involved, right? It becomes real. It becomes a responsibility. You know, as soon as it starts to grow, it needs nurturing. It's been easy enough to keep it as, as it is, right? In its infancy, sort of just, just moving through sort of the motions, but now it's time to grow. It's time to really step it up a notch. And that was not possible until I felt conviction, right? I've always believed in the vision that I've had for this company, but at times I've lacked conviction to see it through, to get it done in some ways to even get it started to get it off the ground. Right now it's on the ground. But it's so ready. 
You know, it just needs to be watered. I need to be the spring whose waters never fail. And in some ways, I think that just takes me waking up to my own self-limiting tendencies. The tendency to be like Jonah and ignore what God is saying. Now, to be clear, I don't actually hear God's voice in my ears. I never have. I won't claim that because that's where you start to get in the crazy territory of claiming to be some kind of prophet. But I do sense that I've always followed my gut for a reason. I've always had faith in my in my consciousness, in my discernment, in my instinctual interests, right? My curiosity. Like my mission has always been clear to me, at least for the last 10 years or so. And in some ways, you know, fuck me for not moving faster, right? When you get called, you answer. You're called upon to tell your fellow man, enemy or not, when they're not behaving properly. When your conscience tells you to do that, you're called upon to do that. If you don't do that, the whole ship will start to rock. But do you think the ancients who were reading this at the time, and they read the story about the he get swallowed by the big fish yeah. or the whale. You think they got this message? They were like, yeah, but what this really means is when you're called upon, excuse me, I'm talking, when you're called upon, then you step up and do it. No, or no, I think- would say it's a step and it's a, it's a, it's a dreamlike step in the developing of understanding. Mm-hmm. So before you fully understand something, you can represent it in a story. Right? It's kind of halfway. A yeah, kid no, who I'm starts actually- to understand something by acting it out. They you? may. I mean, they may have gotten it or they may have gotten it on an unconscious level, right? They got it at an implicit level, on which is what you, level. yeah, well, right. that's what okay. you get when you watch a story is you get it at an right. implicit level. And it's actually very powerful, right? I mean, when people go to movies, most of the time, most people, when they go to movies, don't sit around afterwards and discuss what the movie meant. They just enjoy the, they just enjoy the story. Right. But that doesn't mean they didn't learn anything. It right. just means they don't reflect on what they learned. So this is what I'm talking about with like difficult conversations post COVID tyranny. If we can't discuss what happened, we're, we're doomed, right? We need to debrief what's been done. We need to talk about what worked and what didn't. And I think we are at least some of us. But some of us are just pretending it didn't happen, which is the most infuriating part, right? It's why I have difficult relationships with some people because they refuse to have the conversation. Then again, maybe a lot of that is on me for for not engaging properly or... Mm, I don't know, coming at it from a humble sort of empathetic point of view, even though I try, you know, I guess it was not easy to have these conversations when tensions and emotions were high, but that, that tenor, that temperature has come down to the point where I think we need to 
have these conversations. We need to debrief what's been done. And we need to have the conversation that that a lot of people just don't want to have. The fact that we are all responsible for what is going on because if we don't do something, we're all going to suffer the consequences, right? There is no such thing as being a, you know, passive observer on this on this earth. We all contribute in one way or another. Now, these the, the people who came up with these stories, they were telling the stories because the stories were really interesting. But the question, there's a deeper question is, well, why why the hell was that story interesting and why was it remembered? And so what happens to Jonah is that he's in the whale for three days and then he thinks, I, now I'm in hell. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent of my inadequacy. I'm willing to say what I have to say. So the whale spits him up on the beach. Then he goes to Nineveh and he tells everybody oh. what the hell they're doing wrong and God decides to spare the city. And so for me, this story oh, encapsulates... It's a win-win. It's, it's, well, it's a little hard on Jonah. You know, well, well, he there's lived. the whole hell thing. He does. He, he lived. That's right. He it was a did, he, did, he reloc- did he relocate to Nineveh? No, no it, it's just a pilgrimage to Nineveh. Oh, okay. So yeah. he did. Okay. But he goes there. And then, right. then the city is, in fact, saved. But, but it's perfect, Bill, because what it shows, and, and I know you know this because you wouldn't speak the way you speak. And this is true of comedians in general. You know that you have a moral obligation, like a deep and profound moral obligation. I do. To say what you have to say. And, You're right. Well, then you might say, well, what would happen if people didn't say that? Well, that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is if, if everyone, if there isn't anyone who's left who is good and will tell the truth, then the whole city disappears. And the same thing happens in the story of Jonah. So where, it turns to hell. Everything turns to hell if so you where, don't say so what where you have is, to say. Where is North America now on this on this scale? Of like, how many? Well, you you tell me. I, I mean, you, you tell me. What do you see in <clears throat> Hollywood? How terrified are, are people every, of telling yes. their truthful stories now? Oh, oh, everybody. Okay, I mean, and it's, so no, it's. I mean, we're no, we're in a terrible place, and they're, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to get into the strike stuff, but it's um, it's rough not being able to a voice out there, and I'm not just talking about mine, but our show is one of the few places where you would see people of differing viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Instead of you watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC, you know exactly what they're going to say. Well, you know what the question is. The answer always begins with, you're so right, Chris. Mm-hmm. Right, right, <laughs> or whoever. Right, right. Okay, that's not what we do. And, you know, I feel like... Uh, there should be more of that, and with and, and with the strike on, there's none of that. So it's a little scary. Well, I've been when, talking... when you only hear one, the one side or the side of the bubble you're in, or 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 if you if you're only allowed to say what the like narcissistic Machiavellians want you to say for their own nefarious purposes. I mean, I've talked to lots of people in the entertainment industry who tell me flat out that they're even starting to censor themselves. No, they, they, they can't sit alone in a room now and write down what they actually think or even tell the story they want to tell without having that voice in the back of their head going, you know, if you, you probably shouldn't go there because, you know, the mob's going to come for you. And for, for creative people, as soon as the, 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 what, the angry mob 
The angry mob is the tyrant who can't stand the gesture. It's like as soon as you have the angry mob in your head, you're done as a creative person. You're right. Especially if you're a comedian, because you have to be no, aggressive. It's, it's, uh, it's led to a lot of stress in my life. I would say more than anything else, except relationships. Once the mob gets into your head, it destroys your creativity. I believe that to be true. I, I kind of have felt that at different times, right? When I hesitate to put out a show, even if I have a decent idea for a topic, it's it's oftentimes that fear of being, I don't know, less than coherent or less than agreeable or less than entertaining that makes me pause when I should persevere, right? I I think there's a, there's a lesson here that must be learned. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to be like a public figure or a public speaker. But this, this conviction, right? The conviction to follow your conscience. To do what God guides you towards. When there might be other options that are easier it's it's not necessarily supposed to be easy right it's not now i i hope i'm not being repetitive guys i'm just i'm i'm at the point where i'm trying to learn to quit giving a fuck right sometimes i'm good at that sometimes i'm not but being willing to be real and honest is is a choice it's not like a trait. And once again, like we're all responsible for what's going on. We have to do something. We have to speak out in one way or another. We have to serve the mission that is, you know, what God intends us to do. I, I don't mean to come across as some holier, th- holier than thou motherfucker here. I'm sure I don't, but I know that everybody's got something that they're supposed to do, however small or large, right? You know, I, I've got a pretty grand vision um, for what easy peasy could be, right? I want to bring gardens to backyards all over the nation. It's a tall order. It's a frightening prospect. It, it's going to take some hustle. It already has, but you know, like I said, I almost hit the brakes and maybe I shouldn't have. Even with this show, you know, with my book, it's like I'm not good about self-promotion because I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to have to like sell. But if you're selling something good, there's no shame in it, right? That's what I'm starting to think, you know, I... If I'm going to do anything of value, it's going to take conviction. It's going to take follow through, right? I finally went through the book and edited a lot of the typos out because they were bothering me, but I'd kind of gotten sick of the project in a, in a way, or, you know, in a, that's not the right way to say it. In a sense, I was afraid to go back and read what I had written. You know, I wrote it in such a frenzy 
and then I did a kind of rough edit myself. And after about six months, I, I almost didn't remember a lot of the details of what I had written. And the irony of, of publishing a book that's in some ways autobiographical, right? A lot of it was uh, fiction. You know, it's, it's a fiction book, but I took a lot of true experiences and applied them to the story. And the thing about that is, you know, it was easy to write because I can write what I know. It wasn't so easy to share. Especially with people who I admire the most and who I respect the most. It was sort of an odd experience to, to share my own words with people who, you know, I, I love and respect, but I'm almost afraid to, to let in. I hope that makes sense. Afraid to show my true colors a hundred percent. You know, that book, it was, it was almost too honest for some folks. I kind of told my mom, like, maybe you don't want to read it. And the irony is the, the two people I dedicated the book to, I have yet to, to give a copy. Isn't that, isn't that funny? It's because I'm, I'm being Jonah. I'm hesitating. I'm letting myself be in the belly of the whale when I don't have to be. All I have to do is give it up and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll do. I'll follow your, your guidance here. You know, it's not that hard to give up, but it sure ain't easy, right? Once again, I hope I'm not rambling or being redundant, but let's go on back to Jordan Peterson and Bill Maher. Um, got just a little more of them. <laughs> you know, I, I had to, it took me a long time to learn that I'm not really built for like the kind of standard. I mean, you, when you were ticking off like those five things you need to be happy or whatever. Yeah. Like I must say, that's the one time my, my bristles sort of went up because I've, I don't know if you're saying this exactly, but I've read it in other places. I mean, there's a, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he's a famous doctor and he wrote a book on how to like be, you know, there's a lot of books like that, how to live to be a million years old or, you know, how to don't die if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, 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 right. Books like it's that. It's a good title. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It, it really is. And one of his things was, you know, he had like 40 things you're supposed to do. And I agreed with most of them, you know, obviously stay in shape and you know don't eat sugar and and one of them was be married and i was like you know for you mm -hmm. it, it 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 bothers the unmarried and there's actually i think probably now more of us than married now in america i think that we tipped over that point mm -hmm. a few years ago mm -hmm. i think singles are the majority it just they're just that idea that you know well, you're this doctor, you're supposed to be really smart. A lot of what you say is smart, but you don't get that that's like a personal thing. And, you know, I hate to put it this way, but sometimes when somebody gets cancer and they go like, I couldn't have gotten through it without my wife or I couldn't have gotten through without my husband. And I always want to say, yeah, and maybe they gave it to you. Yeah, well, you know, relationships Not, can be definitely. Yes, they, the stress of one I'm talking well, about, of course. It's funny, though, you know, because is it? 
how much of it do you think is the stress of relationship and how much do you think of it how much of it do you think is the difficulty of maintaining a relationship through the stresses of life right no. because the, the a, not b not, not b not life life is not the problem it's the relationship itself it's the monotony i, I mean again people are different you know, like some people that they, they love that i know guys who like they cannot wake up alone and uh that's not me you know people are different mm -hmm. you know and i don't think we give that enough um respect that idea i think we all there's a lot of this assuming if you're not you know if you want to be happy be married you know just get in get in line buddy come on this is what we're doing here we're doing the marriage thing to be a thing you do you you know Equivalent. So well, we talked about this a little bit right. earlier in terms of the utility of 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 sustaining relationships to sort of keep you tapped into shape. Yeah. So okay. So if you're if you don't have a long I've got dozens of them. Yeah. <laughs> and have they tapped you into shape? I got bitches tapping me into shape all across this country. Are you kidding? Well, so I'm so, all about the tapped into well, shape. Well, so what keeps you? No, what I'm keeps kidding. you as sane as you are? Uh, you know what. My parents. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of it is you were brought up. I I'm very grateful that I was brought up in the era I was brought up in, and not the one we have alluded to tonight, where people are spoiled and where you were overprotected. I was not overprotected. I'm so much. First of all, adulthood just seems like all gravy compared to how much anxiety and fear I had in my childhood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And many people will say the opposite, but to me, childhood was, even when it was not bad, and I didn't have a bad, I had nothing bad happened to me. I had wonderful parents, you know, grew up in a placid New Jersey setting in the 60s. It was very, very leave it to beaver. But I still was like a nervous mess going to school because there was no such thing as like protecting you from bullying. Mm -hmm. Um there was one kid who was bullied so unmercifully. I, I can't believe he didn't kill himself, but mm -hmm. we were made of sterner stuff. So, I mean, the fact that I had that kind of upbringing where I wasn't overprotected, where I got understood very early, certainly before I went off to college, what real sorrow was. Not that I like went to war or anything. That would be the ultimate. But like, you know, getting dumped the first time when you're in 17 and, you know, just the bullying stuff in the schools and all that kind of stuff you're you're going off to college and then college I, there was no social life at cornell it really sucked i mean by the time i got into adulthood i was like oh that, <laughs> what happens to me it's just not worse than cornell <laughs> uh, and and so like it's all been gravy and I'm, i was always meant to be an adult you know i like adult things i didn't even like children when i was a child i thought they were very childish hmm. Mm -hmm. I went to Cornell the first semester. <clears throat> I alienated the entire dorm because they were like having shaving cream fights every night. Okay, it's funny for a week. And then it was like, and I like said something and then I was like the asshole Niedermeyer and had to like lock myself in the room while they banged on the door and, you know, <laughs> wrote bad things. <laughs> you know, it's like that was my experience up until like well, almost till I got out here. And then one was... of the things I have been trying to communicate <clears throat> to my to the audiences that come and listen to me is that, you know, all things prefer all things concerned, it's it's better to be an adult. 
Like it's better. And so people <laughs> people do look back and they romanticize. So much better. They romanticize. Like I, oh, I went to my high school reunion. Just the pussy. <laughs> and I went <laughs> I went back to my high school reunion and and after like 25 years, and it it was a it had many of the stereotype features of such events. And one of them was this nostalgia for let's say junior high. And right. I swore to myself in junior high, I looked around at my friends and I thought. People keep telling us these are the best years of my life, our lives. And all of my friends are miserable. They're miserable being 13, 14. They're like completely miserable. I'm never, never going to forget this. Right. I'm not going to fall prey to the delusion that these were the grandest years of our life. And I don't think they are. I <laughs> they think, were terrible. Yeah. You know, I think this, this sentiment is important. And it applies to not just like high school junior high years people reminiscing and thinking they they were the glory days you know a lot of people say oh college those are the best years of your life i think this applies to our society and this nostalgia this idea that maybe we peaked and it's all downhill from here i really fucking hope that ain't true man because just like jordan peterson i don't think of junior high, high school, or even college as the glory days, you know? Did I have fun with my friends? Sure. But did I have life figured out in any way, shape, or form? Was I satisfied? Was I serving a purpose? Hell no. I mean, I was growing, I was learning, but I do, I I, I can relate to what Bill Maher is saying where it's kind of like, well, this is what I always was meant to be, you know, becoming fully actualized, serving your function, your mission, your calling. I mean, it doesn't get no better than that. Like fuck all the, all the fun, all the parties, all the hanging out, you know, whatever the frivolity. You know, this is kind of my issue with, with you know, when I refer to the difficulty communicating with my family, it's because, you know, my family, I hate to say, it's it's kind of like they just want to be, you know, have frivolity and fun when we're together. And I can understand the appeal, but family ain't supposed to be all about frivolous fun. You know, it's it's bigger than that. It's more important than that. And as I've said, I often am the one to, to say the thing, to, to make the conversation maybe a little bit more challenging. And I don't necessarily want to hesitate to do it. I don't want to be the one stirring up shit just to stir up shit, right? But when there are unresolved issues, there's no way to resolve it but to debrief to talk it out, to address the concern, to come to some kind of resolution, you know, improving the culture of the family. Because if we can improve the culture of the family, we can improve the culture of our country, right? I, I'm saying all this just almost more to... To myself than to you, right? What they're talking about, about, you know, how childish 
children are <laughs> and even you know college students and I'd say beyond college you know it's childish to think that life should just be frivolous and fun it's it's an abdication of our responsibility for the future right to future generations we have to do our due diligence to make sure that we don't leave our children and our grandchildren in a bad way right which is kind of what we're looking at right now and i'm not talking about climate change i'm talking about the political system the government and just the general lack of community right it sounds like a cliche but it's not it we need strong community or we're fucked people are not healthy outside of a, a stable social order right a group we we are social creatures trust me i've spent plenty of time in solitude and i i, I can say honestly i'm so grateful for the fact that i've i've made friends who make me not feel crazy right what started out as online friends have become in a handful of cases real you know in real life friends now it's dangerous to only surround yourself with like-minded people because you can get comfortable there and what good is it to speak truth to people who already know it but there is utility in in understanding that you're not alone right that there are others you know if if we're in Sodom and Gomorrah if you're only one of 10 or 40 folks who are speaking the truth i'm sure it wouldn't hurt to know who those other 39 folks are right so until until there's none of us i still have hope and Again, I'm I'm learning, I'm I'm regaining conviction in my mission because it's what's it's what's being asked of me. I'm sure of it. You know, if, if what I cared about was money, I'd I'd quit doing what I'm doing, and I'd get a job in sales or real estate or something. But no, this is what I'm called to do. And I, I think we've got a little more of this conversation with uh, Jordan and Bill, but we'll see. I, it, there might not be much. Um, I think you get the picture here, right? Like, if if anything, I will apologize for for hesitating, you know, for for not having the conviction that I could have had with this show, with my with my mission, with my gardening. You know, it's about time to fucking grow up. Childhood is not the best years. The best years is when you're making a difference. When you're living out your goal or your mission or what have you. When you're when you're serving God. However that looks for you, right? As long as it's true, it's not for me to judge. But we got to get after it. That much is 
abundantly clear. Yeah, you had acne, and you were—I mean, you were so—you were so horny. <clears throat> I mean, I was like beyond horny from I would say eleven to uh, sixteen without any relief of that except myself. So you're at the horniest, and you know you're was, and least desirable. Well, least it's a desirable, hell of a, co- hell of and, a combination, right? <laughs> exactly. Let's say you did it again, God, genius. Yeah. Um, no, I, I was, uh, and shy. So why did things, super shy? Why so did I, things improve for you when you became an adult? What did, what happened that was different? Well, I don't want to get cosmic on you. I just was always meant to be this way. I was always meant to play this part. Like, um, are you aware of the show Camelot? Yes. Okay. It was one of my parents' favorites when I was a little kid, it was playing in the house, the, the show recording of it. And it's about a king. They remade it. They made it a movie with Sean Connery as the when he was older as the king. King's older. I guess it's King Arthur. And uh, certainly on Broadway, it was Robert Goulet. Canadian Robert Goulet. I, we wait, have all the heartthrobs, man. I was going to say, I will forgive you if you want to like sing praises to Robert Goulet because he is a hometown hero. Come on. He was awesome. I knew him. Awesome dude. Okay, great Canadian. Forgot the words of the national anthem once. We 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 don't know the words to I the know. national anthem. We keep changing them for politically <laughs> know, correct know, reasons. It, you should you should hear a group of Canadians get up and try to sing the national anthem. It is really quite comical. They mum we mumble through at least two thirds of it. Is it sons or daughters or them or they? We have no idea. <laughs> Playing your greatest hits. Um, okay, so. Robert Goulet, this is what made him a star on Broadway in 1960. He played Sir Lancelot. And it's a love triangle, Guinevere. She's married to the king, who's an awesome king. <laughs> he's a great king. He's not like he's a schmuck or anything. And he's still very hot, Sean Connery, even at 60. Okay. So, uh, but she, of course, falls for the handsome young Lancelot, Robert Goulet, when that's when he sings, If ever I would leave you. It wouldn't be in summer. Okay, so um, I hope we don't have to pay royalties for that. So, like, I was never meant to be Lancelot. I'm not the boyfriend. I wasn't good at that. I'm the king. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's great. You can have your boyfriend, your Lancelot, but it was just never the role that I was meant to play. So I just got more comfortable the older I got. To this day, you know. And of course, at some point that will end because, you know, we are pushing, you know, the age where I guess that uh, is around the corner. But, you know, until they stop me, (laughs) I'll continue to live young. So, you know, to answer your question, what keeps me going? I think a lot of it is that I like the fact that I didn't have kids because then I didn't like pass on. I didn't trade my life for someone else's life, which is what you sort of have to do when you have kids. It's noble. And it's I get the sacrifice, but like I'm. I what be, really? What ha, What has sustained you? I mean, you talked about your parents, and you're grateful to the to that relationship. Yeah. Well, so my sister is still in the world, and and we're close, and we talk on the phone and stuff. That's nice. Um, friends, <clears throat> the best. Oh and, yeah. Okay. And the greatest thing about being this age is that you know, friends are something you collect over a lifetime, and I don't mean that in a cynical way. It's a good thing. Yeah, you know, right, right. I remember like at Cornell having no friends. 
Yeah. No friends. Yeah. Zero. How forget, old were you forget. when you went to Cornell? Like, like everybody, 18. Yeah, okay. okay. Like, and when like was that? 74. Okay, okay. Okay, so like forget girlfriends. No girl, <laughs> girls, forget that was not going to happen at Cornell. But uh, not even friends. Hmm. I mean, that's lonely. Yeah, To go right. from that to like when you're this age and you have friends who like I have three friends from childhood, you know, a couple from college. And then friends from early stand-up who are still my friends. Friends from when I was like an actor in the 80s, you know, a couple of people like that. And then from the people on uh, Politically Incorrect and then real time over the last 30 years, friendships that just happened organically. I mean, I never push it on anybody. But a lot of those are long-term friendships. Long-term. So why do you think, so, you don't have to answer there, it's this. It's wonderful it's to have question, so many wonderful friends. Why, why do you think you were so successful in terms of maintaining long-term friendships, but not successful in terms of maintaining Because I don't see it as a success. You're, right, see, but, you the way, see, but you do I, see having I know, but the, long, the I, friends I, I, as a... Just the way the question is phrased, yeah, okay. you are not successful at keeping long-term relationships. Yeah, I, I, I threw the game, okay, Doc? <laughs> I didn't want to be successful. I took a dive in the third round. Yeah. Right, but but it's but it's it's curious to me that you, but that isn't the case on the friendship front. But it's so different. Friendships, okay, what, you don't what? get tired of the sex. I, I still love hanging out with Jim Vallely, and we never, ever expect sex, ever. Not once in 45 years. And it's, so there's just not that dimension to it that is always hanging over the head like the sword of Damocles over relationships. The clock's always ticking on them for when the passion runs out. And that's the dilemma everybody finds themselves in. Everybody finds themselves in it. It's just how people handle it. Some people cheat. Some people leave. Some people don't care. Some people just suck it up. <laughs> you know, everybody has their way of dealing with it. But it's going to happen. No one, I mean, and no one who's in a long-term relationship is going to say, oh, yeah, 20 years on and we still like attack each other when we walk in the door. It's just, it, come on. That's, how, that's true in my case. You still attack each other? Yeah. Okay. I know, I know it like, makes it We just picture. played Stump the Band. Yeah. <laughs> you got, yeah. Sorry, man. You got me. Sorry. You win yeah. Yeah. dinner at Peppy's. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Wow, that's very impressive. So I decided to end it there. You know, in a way, this conversation for me personally, it was almost like having the angel on one shoulder and the devil on another, right? Because I can relate to both of these men. You know, uh, Bill Maher is the commitment phobic comedian free spirit you know <laughs> wearing his hawaiian t-shirt and smoking a cigar and drinking some booze and probably it's you know he's probably stoned versus jordan peterson who is clean cut you know regimented strict diet doesn't drink much uh wears a three-piece suit and, you know, generally is on the side of, you know, self-improvement versus this kind of chaotic character of a, of a comedian, right? But I can relate to both of them. And, you know, part of me envies Jordan Peterson and the fact that he found his spouse at 
eight years old, right? And they are committed and loving and still want to tear each other's clothes off, you know, because that is rare, but I know it's possible. And at the same time, you know, I, I can relate to Bill Maher because he uh, self-sabotages his relationships, right? Something I've definitely been guilty of. And uh, the sort of fear of, of you know, the mundane or, uh, you know, he's probably not being totally self-aware, but I bet you he has a fear of commitment for the same reason a lot of people do. You know, it's a fear of being hurt and hurting, hurting someone else, right? Better to just keep it, keep it simple, keep it casual for the sake of not hurting one another. Um, I don't know, in general, this, this conversation just really piqued my interest for a lot of reasons. Um, I hope, I hope you got something from it. I don't have a lot to add. Uh, once again, you know, I guess I just have had a harder time being that free-flowing spring. But I'm working on it, guys. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm getting, my, getting my mojo back, right? If I'm going to do what I want to do, I got to have that fucking mojo. I got to know I can get it done. I can do it. I got to know who to ask to help. Because I don't think any of us can do it alone. Right? So I guess on that note, I will ask humbly, if you're enjoying this show and you want to hear more, please go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips and hit the donate button. You know, once again, I got some silver from John and that's nice, but truth is I could use some dollars. Dollars are easier to spend than silver. And uh, we've got bills to pay here at the Easy Peasy Shop. So thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all soon.